Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am Janice Leibovitz, and you are my People of the Book. My guest today is Erica Tablanche. And before I tell you about Erica's book, first of all, welcome to the show, Erica. Thank you so much, Dennis. What a privilege to be here. Thank it you. is lovely to have you. Before I tell you what Erica's book is called, the title of the book, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Erica. Erica is a life coach. She's a psychologist. She holds a master's degree in positive psychology. She is the founder of Teach a Girl to Fish. And I'm going to talk a bit about that later. It's not what you think it is. And it is her lifelong quest to determine how we can all, over time, shape and mold ourselves to become the best we can possibly be. The other two founders, the companies that that Erica is founder of, and this might give you a hint as to what Erica is passionate about, is Thrive Guru and Thrive Run Club. The title of Erica's book is Run for the Love of Life. And what Erica does, what she is passionate about, is extreme running. And, and I mean, if you know me, <laughs> and my, my children will tell you, <laughs> I do not run. And if you ever see me run, you should run too, because something is very, very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so um firstly I, I i love the teacher girl to fish thing and and i said you know it's not what you think it's actually kayaking trips in greece we're going to talk about that later it will come up later but first talk to me about you started off you didn't start off actually with extreme running you started off with extreme endurance racing. I'd never heard of it. I mean, what a surprise. I'd never heard of it. Um, <laughs> talk to me. Tell me what that is. I mean, tell my listener what that is. And, and talk to me about, about where your love for that started. Sure, Janice, what an invitation. Thank you very much. So, you know, I think one has to start right at the beginning. Um, I grew up on a farm. And I think that love for the outdoors and the need to be outside and to feel connected uh, to the outdoors has always been in me um, for all my life. And then life happened, you know, I grew up, um, went to university, didn't do a lot of sport at school, really, um, did lots of uh, outdoor hiking and stuff. But then life happened, went to university, got a job, started working 18-hour days in the consulting industry and banking industry. Yes, you were quite corporate. Yeah, very. I mean, (laughs) I'm talking high heels, you know, skirts and tailored suits, the the whole kadoodle, and being indoors for between, you know, 8 and 18 hours a day sometimes for for weeks on end, um, you know, working for dead, under deadlines. And during that time, I recognized actually that I needed to start doing something physical and to get outdoors. And it, to cut a long story short, a friend of mine dealed me to a half marathon one evening after a glass of wine. 
I should have said no. I said yes. I mean, it was the worst experience of my life. We did run the, I stumbled the half marathon the next uh, morning. And it took a very long time. I was about 30 years old. And with this very same friend, um, I then saw a program on television late one night. And I think it was the Borneo Eco Challenge in Fiji, or uh, uh, in Borneo, uh, sorry. And it's these long distance endurance events where you four people in a team, one has to be of the opposite gender, and then you run, hike, kayak, canyoneer, uh, rock climb, cycle, I mean, name it, whatever, if it moves, you're on it. But here's the trick, you do it in wilderness areas, self-navigating, and you do not sleep. So you sometimes go five days and five nights. I mean, it's quite, it's an extraordinary adventure of the human body and the human soul. When you begin to hit three days, three nights, the fourth day of not sleeping at all. And so I discovered this sport. I saw the television program and all that nature uh, longing from my childhood came rushing to the fore. And I thought, that's it. That was my sport. I did my first race. My first race was a 100-kilometer race. And I was hooked. hooked. I mean, I, I got married immediately to the sport. You see, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm, it, it fascinates me. It, it, I mean, you know, for someone like me who, I mean, and I know that people run and get addicted to it and, and running is, is, you know, people go running. They, they run a few Ks every morning or every day or every afternoon when they get back from work. And I, I, I know they do this, but this is something completely different. And that, that, was, that was even before, you know, your, your actual extreme running. This was your, your adventure, everything. So, so we're going to take a quick break. This is People of the Book. You're not listening to a fitness show. This is not an exercise show. This is People of the Book. I'm still Janice Leibovitz. I'm talking to Erica Tablanche. <laughs> and we're talking about her book run for the love of life i love it when you read to me this is people of the book with janice Liebowitz. we're back this is people of the book and today my guest is erica tablanche we're talking about her book run for the love of life all about erica's passion relationship and absolute love for adventure running, extreme running. So as you said, Erica, life happens. You've had a lot going on in your life and um, you did have one particular life experience. You walked out of it and for some reason, which which unknown to me, clearly very clear to you, you needed to go (laughs) to the Sahara, Mm -hmm. the Sahara Desert. And embark on an endurance run. And what was interesting to me, what you, what you said, that someone had said to you um, just before you embarked on this race, which I found particularly interesting and, and which to me seemed quite obvious. To you, it didn't seem obvious at the time. Mm-hmm. A friend advised that it was significant, significant you had a physical setback before the race and a friend advised that that, that was significant in the metaphysical world. And talk to me about that, that physical setback and, mm. and how, how it was blocking you in the physical world. 
So, Janice, I'm, I'm going to start answering the question about the Sahara just from where we picked up with the adventure racing before. You know, for five years, I understood. So, so I started doing this adventure racing. My first short distance race, short distance race was 100 kilometers. And then for five years, I continued to excel in the sport and eventually went to uh, the World Championship in New Zealand. And during that five-year period of growing in the sport, I began to understand so deeply how deeply intertwined the human soul and the human body, our emotions, our physiology, our psychology, these things are so completely intertwined. The one influences the other. And it taught me the lesson that when something happens to us psychologically, that the imprint of that stays in the body. In the same way, when something happens to us physically, the imprint stays with us emotionally and psychologically. Yes. And so just before I went to, uh, to the Sahara, I went through a divorce, which was difficult, as divorces are. Yes. And the statistics yes. will tell you that a third of people end up in divorce. Now the statistics today of current third of people end up there and I got ITB in my right uh, leg and ITB is when there's an inflammation of the itibial band and it basically means you cannot take a step forward never mind run 250 yes. kilometers through the desert right <laughs> and the physiotherapist that I saw gave me the basic exercises nothing worked and then I went to see an osteopath who was very connected um uh, uh, and understood this uh, interplay between the body and, and, and the psychology, you know. And she really helped me to understand that my atibial band being inflamed was simply about taking the next step forward, leaving the one chapter of one's life and then taking the next step to the next chapter and the fear that comes with it and the, the caution and also dealing with the loss of leaving one thing and the hope, daring to hope and stepping into the future. So that itibial band, um, I, I remember standing in Heathrow and saying to my mom, mom, I'm going to walk this desert race. If I can't walk it, then I will crawl it. And if I have to drag myself forward with my tongue, I will also do that, <laughs> but I'm going. And, you know, and, and when I arrived at the start of the race, I started shuffling off the start line very gingerly, very slowly. And lo and behold, I could run. And I think that was the very beginning of the healing and feeling it so embodied in the body, being able to take the next step and then the next step and then facing this enormous physical challenge in this, and dare I say, magical place of the Sahara Desert. You know, I, I really have to say in those seven days, some huge, huge restoration of my heart uh, took place as I battered my body through the desert. I have to just ask, I mean, you know, I mean, for, for many of us, we experience sand when we go on a beach holiday and sand is not easy to walk on. And how do you run in sand or on sand? Yeah, you know, nature, nature has the answers always. So Look at how the desert animals do it. A gecko. Geckos splay their feet 
they don't take big, hard strides. They do not run like Usain Bolt, no. So in the, so you very, very quickly, and this is also quite an extraordinary thing about people and how uh, easily we adapt, how quickly we adapt. So without having had training of really running for very long periods in sand, you very, very quickly learn that it is much easier to shuffle than to walk. Because when you walk, your feet dig in and you make holes and there's inertia. If you shuffle like a hovercraft, um, there's, a, there's much more efficiency if you stay light and slightly above the sand. So it's not the most attractive uh, running style in the world, but it's very efficient. So very quickly, one learns to shuffle and then you look at the patterns on the sand and you begin to learn that if you run against the grain of it, there's a little bit more purchase than when you're running with the line of the, you know, the, the, the ripples on the sand. So if you can put your feet slightly across the, at, at, at an angle, there's some grip. So you learn very, very, yeah. very quickly. And then I have to also say the Sahara sand is very different, say, to the Namib sand, where the Namib sand is literally one dune of quicksand that you sink in up to your thighs. And where in the wow. Sahara, some of the, 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 the sand has purchased, you can, you can run on it. There was there was one point where where you spoke during this this Sahara um, event where you looked up and you said there was not another soul in sight and I know that was a bit of, of an epiphany for you and I was thinking oh, she's lost no, no. but actually it was the opposite you were found <laughs> you found yourself in that moment. You really found yourself in that moment. But I, I just, I pictured sand dunes and, and sand and open, just open everything and just you, this lone soul. And it was after my initial panic, um, it was it was quite beautiful. But yeah. the thought of, for, well, for me, I mean, it's, you know, we're not talking about me though, that that thought of, you know, just lone you, you know, you looked around you and then you you started, you set up a little <laughs> selfie station. I love that. Um, and because you, you do want to capture the moment, as much as you, you, it's not about social, it wasn't about social media. It wasn't about, you know, broadcasting it to the world. It was about you being alone in that moment with yourself and, and being at one with yourself. And it was so beautiful. And your description of it was was quite incredible and your, your the way you described it you can I mean the reader can just picture it perfectly and it's yeah. quite incredible so oh, that, yeah, well well I just want to say as as a writer hearing how it transported you to that place because that's really important to me that people get to experience it for themselves that I sort of almost fade away and you feel yourself standing there in the Sahara in that vast desolateness. The privilege of it being so alone and not lonely, so held in the universe of things. It was quite, it was a very, very, very special feeling. And, and I think that's why we go into nature, isn't it? Yes. It's for and you, you brought it to life so yeah. perfectly. I, I could picture that. So, and I could feel what you felt. You described mm. it beautifully. It was absolutely perfect. 
After the break, I want to talk, I mean, we could talk about, I don't want to talk about every single race that you describe in the book, because obviously I would like my listener to buy the book and read it and experience it for themselves. Um, But Mm -hmm. I'd like you to describe for my listener what one of these races entails, because I don't think that people would understand but let's take a quick break you're listening to people of the book i am talking to erica to blanche about her book run for the love of life i love it when you read to me this is people of the book with janice Liebowitz. i'm janice Liebowitz, and you are listening to people of the book I'm talking to Erica Tablanche today, and she is chatting to me about her book, Run for the Love of Life, and her experience with endurance running. Now, Erica, in the book, you talk about the the different runs that you've been on. You talk about your life experience, and we're going to get to that. Break it down for me and for my listener, just briefly. Well, I mean, these are not brief runs, but break it down for me. Describe exactly what happens. I mean, a run like this basically usually takes about a week to do. Explain to me what happens from the day you arrive until you reach the finish line. Okay, fantastic. Thank you for that invitation because not everybody knows how these seven-day races work. So these are ultra-distance runs um, that are always run in remote wilderness areas of the world. My favorite locations are in the big deserts of the world. And typically a race would be between 250 and 270 kilometers long, sometimes longer, but that's the typical distance. And all of it is run across wilderness terrain. So in the desert, a large proportion of it will be through sand dunes, like in the Atacama Desert, across those razor sharp salt flats. And what makes these races so interesting is that you carry every single thing that you are going to eat or use for these seven days, except for your water. So you carry all your food for seven days, your sleeping bag, your clothing, your toiletries, your medicines, whatever it may be that you may need for seven days, that's what you carry. So there's an enormous discipline on keeping the weight of your back. Low, low, low. So how much would that weigh? How how much approximately would that weigh? So Janice, I've trained myself over the years to subsist on little food at these um, extreme levels of physical exertion. So I have a competitive advantage that I have managed to get my pack down to six kilograms weight. And what that means is six kilograms with, with a liter of water. So... Um, I've learned, I mean, I cut off the stem of my toothbrush and I only keep the bristles. I take two-minute noodles out of the plastic bag and I take that little sachet of seasoning out and I put it in a Ziploc because that saves, um, the, the, the Ziploc is slightly lighter than the, than the plastic bag. <laughs> so it becomes, you cut off the straps of your backpack. You know, you, um, you have only one set of clothing bar the one that you wear and you learn to walk around in a crop top, you know, most for most of the time and you learn how to, what it is to sleep cold. So all the luxuries disappear. So you carry your own stuff for seven days, um, all your food, like I said, and then every evening um, 
you get an allocation of water. Depending on the desert, it's normally five liters of water that you need to subsist on. During the run, you also, um, every 10 to 20 to 25 kilometers, depending on whether uh, the organizers can get access to the area, you are met with a checkpoint staff so that they can make sure the racers don't. Because once you've lost a racer in a 15-kilometer circumference in the desert, that person has a very high likelihood of perishing if you don't oh find gosh. them inside. Because, um, yes, the so number of people that you start with is not the number of people that you finish with. There are people who drop out during the race, yeah. yes. Absolutely. And so they have to drop out somewhere. So these checkpoints are high security areas where, you know, somebody could go to if they're hypothermic. And I can't tell you, I mean, not hypothermic, but where they've got sunstroke or de severe dehydration or they can't carry on anymore. Um, and then you get about four or five checkpoints um, every day. And so the distances per day, so you would typically start these races with the first day will be anything between 30 to 50 kilometers long of running across the desert with six kilograms on your back. So, but mostly people's backs weigh between eight and 12 kilograms. Wow. And then that's the first day. And then the next day would be another, say, 40 kilometers. And the next day typically is, say, another 40 kilometers. And here's my favorite day then. On the fourth or the fifth day, we get what we do, the long run. The long, the long day. Ah, the, long, the long run is, is, is the nemesis of the race, and it's typically about 100 kilometers, between 80 and 120 kilometers long, um, depending on how the distances are constituted. And you run that through the night. And to be honest, it's my absolute favorite part of the race because that's where the magic happens. That's where the magic happens. And then the next day, um, and I think they've made this a, a legal requirement. The next day has to be a rest day. And then we have one, but not all races observe that. So we may even run 50 kilometers again the next day and then finish on the last day with, with another distance to make up the 270 kilometers. So, so and then, it's, and it's, then for each day, there, there's yeah. a time limit. You have to complete that length, that, that allocated those allocated kilometers have to be completed within a certain amount of time. There's a cutoff, am I right? Well, no, no. Actually, and this is what makes these seven-day races so accessible for many, many people. The cutoff is you've got to be there for in time for when the next day starts. Oh, I see. Because I, I, the, the, I know yes. that one race, someone made it with three minutes to spare. At I was holding end. my breath at that point. Yes. But that's at the that's at oh, the end that of the, the race. Oh, was that the that's end of the race? After seven oh. days, oh, okay. you have seven days to finish this whole thing. I don't know but why I thought that was the end at the end of the long day. Okay. No, it was the end of the end. Oh, okay. the end of the of the of the whole race. And maybe it's because that race uh, ended with a long day. It's possible. Oh, okay. The, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And and I mean, it's the people at the back. So, and this is exactly the strategy, right? So. When you run a race, you want to get in as quickly as possible because the law of endurance distance running is he or she who recovers fastest wins. So the more time you have back at camp and now we're lying around all day long drinking water, resting in the shade, 
recovering. The people at the back who come in at 8 o'clock at night, 9, 10, 11, midnight, sometimes at 2 in the morning, quickly have to eat, put bandages on their blistered and shredded feet, and be ready for the start gun again at 5 or 6 a.m. the next morning. Those are the heroes of the race because they sleep four hours and off they go again and they're out there the whole day. So, so for every day, typically, I mean, but different races are different, but typically there's no cutoff. The cutoff is actually the, the end of the race, the seven days. You know, wow. that's why you hold the breath when people come across after seven days and they've got three minutes until cutoff. I mean, uh, it's like... Wow, that was... Yeah. So, I mean, although running is, they say it's a solitary pursuit and it's a solitary sport, you need to have a strong support team behind you. You can't do that alone. And you had a realisation after speaking to someone who you were running with and you thought, who, who would I call at four in the morning? And it's quite a harsh realisation. And you did have, I mean, you you did have close family. You did have good friends. Yeah. And yeah. But when you're out there and you're on your own, I mean, things play on your mind. You are, there's no doubt. Mm. You have to have a very strong mental capacity to be able to do mm. this. Completely, completely. I mean, you know, out there, and Janison, this is the, it's the double-edged sword of doing these endurance races because when you go and do it, you access your life. You access parts of your life that maybe needs changing. There's no way to hide. The veneer comes off. The stuff that you've been pushing under the carpet, truth, Bob, they're going to bubble to the surface because when you go through that amount of pain, that amount of struggle um, and, and pushing through, you realize so many things about your life, but it's in at the same time an enormous gift because it's much better. You know, when that particular thing happened to me and I was thinking about who would I call at 4 a.m. in the morning, it's after my divorce. And, and I think through that period, I really began to understand how important relationship is in our life and what priority to give it in my life. So through the racing, through life's experiences, I shifted a lot of my perspective around that. But you do go to, to places that you may have um, tried to put away and it comes yeah. to the surface. So yeah. that is the first thing. And then the second thing is maybe endurance running is a very solitary thing and a, and a lot of endurance runners go out there for that extraordinary connection with nature and being by themselves and working through their stuff, really. But in the end, when we get together in the evenings and we sit around the tents, the degree of camaraderie and the, the deep connections that happen on those races, I think that's the other very yes. special thing. About yeah, I would imagine so. The dichotomy of alone, alone, and deeply connected, alone, alone, and yeah because these are people who understand why you are there and what you are going through because you're sharing something that other people are not going to understand. That's a unique bond that you're going to have. Yes, that, um, that, we, that we understand each other. But beyond that, you know, now you've sweated together, you're stinking together. Nobody knows whether you sweep the streets or whether you're a CEO back home. 
we are anonymously there as equal participants in life. And because you now strip open to the bone, because what happens in those endearing states is your heart comes to the surface. And, yeah. and I use heart yeah. as a symbol for emotions, if you're more scientifically minded. Yes. I mean, yes. your, your psychology is not hidden. And because our hearts have bubbled to the surface, it is so easy to connect. And you won't believe the conversations that people have with each other on these races where nothing is hidden. We share openly. There's no shame. There's just compassion, understanding, and, a, and, a, and an openness that, yo, it will take a year in normal life to get to that degree of friendship. And there in the desert, after three days, you just tell it as it is. because Instant connection. Mm, yeah, absolutely. The veneers washed away. And yeah. Maybe what happens in, you know, these high states of when, when the troops go to war, we often hear about the friendships um, that have that were formed in the trenches. It's a similar thing. Yeah, I get that. Talk to me about the structure of the book, because the structure of your book is quite interesting. You know, most books start at the beginning, but you only give your background and where you began in Chapter 5. <laughs> You, you don't start off with that. You you only with chapter five is you know close to the middle of the book. Why did right. you choose to do that? You know, yeah, chapter five. I got to chapter five, and all of a sudden, um, I felt oh, now we know who you are. <laughs> yeah, oh, you, you start true, giving all your background and, and uh, where you're from and how you started right. out and your life and when you were younger. That's quite interesting. Why did you choose to do that? So I'm not entirely sure it was premeditated in in such a, um, you know, structural way. I think what really happened was that I wanted to write a very light and helpful book about the psychology of endurance running. And I wanted to do, say, a, a, a little tapestry of 10 of my the races where I didn't do so well where I learned the most and to link that with the lessons from positive psychology and to leave readers with a very light oh that was fantastic adventure an adventure novel an adventure running novel adventure slash running novel you, you see about adventure running exactly exactly and I wanted to give re- uh, readers the useful things that I both learned in the trenches, so to speak, and um, in positive psychology um, and in psychology and marry the two so people could walk away with something useful. And I had a fantastic um, editor, Michelle Bobby-Wood, and Michelle phoned me and she said, "Um, just by the way, so I wrote two books. I wrote the adventure running book. And then the second book was from chapter five, a little bit more about life. And I didn't give my editor the both books when I asked her to edit it. And when she finished the first book, she said, hmm, okay, where are you in the story? Your readers will want to know you. And, and I think it was deliberate, Janice, because I wanted to not be in the way, you know, and that's also why there are no photographs in the book, because I want for readers to feel themselves in those places there. 
um, in those peak experiences, in those low experiences, going through it so that they can taste the truth and the authenticity of it by themselves without me being so forefront in their face. But then Michelle advised me very wisely that I share more. And once I started sharing, as you could see uh, through the thread of the book, I then couldn't stop myself from sharing really the things that were really important. And I gave myself permission to, to write the book I would have written in the second uh, edition. And I just combined the two books and now you've got two for the price of one, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that because it's not just, you know, it could have been just, a, like you say, a list of chapters about your 10 races and uh, I ran this mm -hmm. race and we went here and this was day one and this was day two and this was day three. And then, then I went into the next race and then it's day one and day two. And three. But this is something completely unique. This is, a, this is your story. And you are there in it. You're at the heart of it. And you talk about there's emotion and there's feeling and there's heart. Yeah. And yeah. you are woven into the story. And it couldn't have been written any other way, really. And kudos to your editor because she yeah. really does her job very, very well. She knew exactly what this needed. And yeah. this, this is a story about you as much as it is about the running, I mean, as much as it's fascinating, I mean, fascinating for someone like me to read about, about this, these races and this extreme running and the experience, and it is fascinating. I mean, I, it's fascinating to read about places, some of which I'd never heard of. And I mean, some of these, some of these, these um, I mean, the Dorking Nutter, that is the name of an event. It is, it's an obstacle race in the UK, because I mean, I'm English, so I can say this. I'm from the UK. I was born in England. They're a bit weird, UK people. Um, and they do, they have funny obsessions. They go, you know, stomping around in mud puddles and, and things like that. And that's just, you know, that's quite a normal one. So, so, you know, you are at the heart of this book and it couldn't have been written any other way. When we come back, we are going to talk about Teach a Girl to Fish. And we're going to talk about the Thrive Run Club before we wrap up. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Liebowitz. This is People of the Book and I'm Janice Liebowitz. And today I've been talking to Erica Tablanche about her book, Run for the Love of Life. It's all about extreme running, but it's not only about that. It's about Erica and her story and her life why she does what she does, and how it led her to create her beloved company, Teach a Girl to Fish. It's not what you think it is. It's not actually teaching girls to fish and to cast a rod into water. These are, this is a company that takes women on kayaking trips. It's based in Greece. I mean, it sounds like everyone's kind of dream company. I have to ask you, why did you not form a company taking people on extreme runs? Well, to a lesser degree, perhaps. What was it? Why did you create a kayaking company? Isn't that strange? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is quite hilarious. It's a fantastic question. Oh, Janice. So, I mean, okay, I love water. I love, love water. Um, and quite contrary to what it may appear like 
on the surface of extreme running and adventure racing, which is even crazier, and which is the next book. But in at heart, I'm actually very gentle, and I don't believe at push. Uh, I don't believe in pushing and breaking and. And there's, uh, there's a part of me that really believes in the power of, of the gentle. And, and I think these kayaking trips um, that take people on five-day expeditions in Greece, you know, we get on the water, we load our boats, and then we go on this silky smooth Asian sea. Okay, sometimes it's not silky smooth, and that's where the personal growth comes from. But... <laughs> <laughs> experience and and as my company says it's teach a girl to fish so i mean it's not excluding guys but most of the time i have groups of women who've never kayaked before in their entire lives and we learn over a five-day period how to kayak how to kayak safely and we complete an 80 kilometer expedition on living on uninhabited islands going to these ancient spas regenerating in the spa sleeping in old fishermen's villages and dining with the Greeks in a taverna, um, and then the next evening sleeping on an uninhabited island under the stars. You know, so part of me, as much as I need the challenge and I need um, the extremity of the endurance sport, I also need the restoration and the rest and the, that kind of immersive gentleness that comes from being on a boat with eight women for six days on the Asian Sea. So I think that's why I, yeah, that's it sounds, why. It's a it sounds thing. heavenly. I mean, it sounds, it sounds, I mean, it sounds life-changing. It sounds heavenly. I'm saying it sounds, oh, oh, everyone wants to go on holiday to a Greek island. But I mean, it sounds transformative. Yeah. So, so, so you did speak about uh, that I've got a master's degree in positive psychology because I've always been interested in what it means to live one's best life and especially in modern day where sometimes I think we we could um, lose perspective of what's really important and I built an entire course to run on these kayaking trips um, to, you know to help people to envisage their future blah 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 I dropped the course like a cold potato because on these kayaking trips exactly as you're saying it happens by itself it's completely life-changing and it's the sea that does it it's the Dolmades, it's the few glasses of wine in the evening as the sun sets, it's sleeping under the stars. There's something so magical that happens, and I actually did my dissertation on it to try and understand what happens for people when they kayak for five days, and is it the rhythm of the movement, is it the sea, is it the, the um, company of six other people, is it the long periods of silence, I don't know what it is. But when people come from those trips, they know what to do when they get back home. Maybe they've been stuck in a job they should have left a long time ago or in a marriage, or maybe they should get married, or people make really big changes um, after five days on the They kayak. find their answers out there. They just, their answers come to them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that is why... This thing of nature immersion, and I don't really care how we do it, whether we take the cable car up onto the top of Table Mountain or whether you go kayaking in Greece or go running into the desert. This thing, we, we need nature. It's called biophilia. It's our deep longing and connection for nature. 
you know, and I often do exercises in my in my coaching courses to ask participants to score themselves whether they're city people or nature people. And very often people say, oh, no, gosh, honey, I don't do mud. I'm a city girl, please. And then you do a meditation and ask people to describe their special place. In doing 10 years of doing this work, nobody has described New York. Nobody. Yeah, or their, or their office. Or no, no nobody. One. People talk about willow trees. People talk about the sea, the breeze on their skin. They can feel the sun. They silence. They can hear animals, birds. You know, so this nature connection, and I yeah. know I've now gone off on a tangent, but <laughs> it's so important, and the kayaking takes us there. Before we wrap up, and I wish we had more time, tell me very, very briefly, and I know it's not a brief conversation, but tell me very briefly about the Thrive Run Club and your couch to 3Ks, 5Ks, and 10Ks. All right. So thank you for that invitation. Next to the thing of getting into nature, because we absolutely need it for um, to not have nature deficit disorder. Next to that, it is as critically important that we move our bodies daily. And it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter whether it's gardening, swimming, biking, walking. Anything that gets your body moving is absolutely critically important because the psychology and the physiology of it is if we don't, we get depressed, full stop. Um, so at the end of this book, I really wanted to give people a resource. So if you are inspired by the book to start moving, whether it's walking or running, um, it doesn't matter. I've put together a program from all my from 20 years of experience, a couch to 3K, a walking or running couch to 5K, and a couch to 10K program. All of that is available on my Facebook page on this Thrive Run Club. So that when people come out of having read the book and they're so inspired and on fire to do something, the resource is at their fingertips. And so the invitation is for people to go and get somebody in their friendship circle, in their office, um, in their neighborhood, invite them, take the couch to 3, 5, 10K program, go through it. You will take the first step to your best life. And that's really why I wrote the book. I love that. And, and I, I love the book. I have been talking today to Erica Tablanche. Erica, thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat to me. Janice, thank you. It was absolutely wonderful. I didn't quite know what to expect, but you have held, held me and us in such a beautiful way. Thank you. And for the generosity of your questions, uh, you have really gone to the heart of the book. And thank you for that. It is such a pleasure. Thank you again for taking the time. Go and get this book. It is fascinating. I, I mean, like I said, you know, I am not a runner. I don't love exercise. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I, I was transported. And, you know, when, when you are transported to, to far off places and to far off experiences, you know the book is good. So, Erica, thank you so much for that. The book is Run for the Love of Life. It is written and experienced by Erica Terblanche. My dear listeners, as I always tell you, take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Wear your masks. Get vaccinated and boosted if you're able to. And read a book.